Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. We call this the weekly update Fridays at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Right now it looks like we need to do hourly updates, <laughs> given the right things are happening. News is going on so quickly that hourly updates may not even be sufficient. Is there any indication, I know that uh, you know, as we casually read the news, I guess it seems like it's 50-50 at this point. Nobody knows for sure either way. But is there anything you could tell us about this Egypt Air flight uh, that went down yesterday, uh, whether in fact it's the result of a terror attack or not? Well, we don't know for sure, but the indications are that it was a terror attack and the assumption that they were all operating on and the uh, signs from the discussions from the cockpit up until right before the disappearance off the radar of the plane would indicate that it was a, a terrorist act. And remember, the plane had been in Tunisia that day, and it was in Paris only, I think, 90 minutes on the ground, uh, and was exposed during that time uh, to any kind of uh, ground crew, uh, tenant, attendant, uh, passenger, somebody who managed to bypass the security. And, you know, that I know in that French airport, they did a scrutiny earlier in the year, and I think 83 people were removed for suspicious ties to extremist groups. And uh, it's one of the dangers is that, uh, you know, airports, while even under scrutiny and under with close um, uh, security surveillance and, and controls, it's very vulnerable. Uh, you know, what we're used to as uh, Americans who, uh, who travel and, you know, and, and witness and experience the whole airport experience. Uh, so we're used to what I would call, you know, pretty close monitoring. Let's put it that way. Uh, I, I would guess it's not like that in every airport around the world. It's certainly not in every airport. And, um, you know, we've seen the explosions where people walk into airports in Belgium, and we had it, and you had in Egypt the shooting down of a plane over the Sinai, which was probably a, a rocket fired by uh, ISIS or, or other terrorist entities there. Uh, so Egypt has been a target, and the um, but but even our own uh, TSA crews and stuff, when they've done the surveys of them, they found many had criminal records, many were uh, suspect themselves. So. It's it's very hard in in these in a big operation like this, if there isn't uh, a much better uh, effort to to screen out people and to build perimeter defenses. Everybody's vulnerable. Yeah, uh, we'll get to what's happening in Israel in just a moment. I just want to ask you a couple of things regarding. Uh uh, sanctions against uh, Iran, and then uh, something about Israel regarding uh, what's happening here in the United States. Uh, the Texas governor has, um, he says he's, he will not be lifting sanctions on Iran, and I was wondering, if, I was wondering, is, is that only symbolic because states have very little say or activity when it comes to a relationship with Iran, or is this much more significant in terms of the you know, financial category? No, it is significant, and there are about 20 states that have passed such legislation, and to my knowledge, not one has acceded to the request from the State Department that they rescind those uh, the, the, those pieces of legislation and restrictions, uh, because the states have uh, huge pension funds who, that invest in many companies, 
they also do business with companies uh, of all kinds. Uh, you know, each state does many billions of dollars in business, and those who are thinking about doing business with Iran are going to think twice if they think that it will preclude them from being able to do business with the states. So, so number one, it is significant. Number two, the Iranians have made it significant. They said that under the deal, uh, the secondary sanctions should have been removed uh, as well. And they have uh, raised this issue in saying, well, the United States has not lived up to its commitments as long as those things. That is not part of the commitment in the state, and the federal government doesn't have the right to control it. And third, this is the real uh, test of the fact that this is not a treaty, this is not uh, something that was voted on, uh, that might say that the federal legisl- le- uh, legislation supersedes state legislation right. uh, because it was never voted. As you remember, the vote right. in the Senate and the House were, was against the bill. Uh, they pulled off a, a maneuver, but it, it's not something that was uh, voted up, and therefore um, states are not bound by it. And, and uh, I think also when you look at the record and you see how even in recent days Iran is violating in every possible way the in terms of the spirit the letter they say that they have no spirit of the law well they do have obligations and we've seen now their continued effort to undermine uh, uh governments and to to uh, expand their terrorist uh, network their support for Hezbollah increasing activities in Iraq where we see much more um, many other things c- coming from Iran um and they cracked down domestically, by the way, against the protests that were going on there against corruption. And you don't read about it, but they, they this, you know, the, the, the so-called moderate government of Rouhani, who was called both in Rhodes Peace and Wendy Sherman, who was the chief U.S. negotiator until earlier in the year, both said that, in fact, they knew that this is an extremist regime and Rouhani was being portrayed as a moderate, was really a subterfuge, one could say. If you look at the number of executions since Rouhani came into power in 2013, 2,300 men and 66 women were ex- executed, many in public. 2,300, you said? 2,300 men and 66 women. Wow. And this is far more than under Ahmadinejad and all of the, quote, hardliners and right, you know, extremists. This is an extremist government. And Rouhani is no different. He just knows how to put a better face on it and a better... They, they crack down... Uh, on on um, the dress code, they put 7,000 more morality police in the streets, plainclothes uh, police, who can, if you if your mugger isn't adjusted right, if other things, they can arrest you. And there's a, a growing backlash uh, against it. So, but, but the point is that Iran is violating the the deal, and this is one of the strong messages that we can send is that. And, and Secretary Kerry, as you know, has been trying to promote Europeans to to do business, and again did it uh, in the last uh, the day or so. Where the and, and Secretary Liu and others have uh, tried to push the idea that that uh, the sanctions, that the bank shouldn't, European banks shouldn't feel restricted from signing agreements that they can do business through American banks. The banks don't want to do business. Stuart Levy wrote a terrific op-ed piece. He used to be the undersecretary who developed all these sanctions. He's now the uh, counsel of HSBC. But Deutsche Bank, Standard Charter, all of them said, 
We're not doing business with them because the banks are corrupt. The banks are tied to terrorism. The banks are tied to money laundering. And they say, clean up your act. Don't come and put the onus on us. You clean up your act. And to try and whitewash this and telling the banks, don't worry, we're not going to prosecute you. We're not going to do anything to you. Why should they be supporting a corrupt Iranian banking system which, as we all know, is is tied to terrorism and that yeah. good part of the economy is in the hands of, of IRGC and the regime. I get that, but there there have been times relatively recently where banks have been you know discovered doing business with Iran when they weren't allowed to. So it's not and, like and they pay a very heavy price, and that's another one of the issues. Exactly, is that they they know that they've put, that billions have been paid in fines, and they don't want to be subject to the fines again, and they don't know what the next administration, what Congress could enact. So they are not um, uh, going to take that chance. Yeah, I mean, they might be hedging their bets. It may, it may not be a, a benevolent move. It may be more of a, uh, of a you know, let's see what's going to happen in the White House and, and what the, you know, and what the uh, atmosphere is going to be in yeah, Washington. I, I'm not saying, suggesting the banks are doing head of moral reasons. Right. I'm <laughs> saying they're doing it for very practical considerations. Right. Understood. But, but some of them have said, you know that their objections, and you know when when people tell us, well, you see, they're acting more restrained. Just look at what happened this week. You know, with the killing of of um, uh, Berjardine, right? And this was the leading terrorist who right. took over for Imad Mukhnia, who was killed in 2008 in the car bombing, and and he was the chief. By, by the way, a week later, looking less like it was Israel responsible for it, but... No, knows? Israel's not. It does not look like Israel right. was responsible, though, call it a vote to whoever did it. Right. But the, the here is the guy who was in charge of, the, uh, of all the Hezbollah operations in Syria. He was in charge of uh, operations in the, of, of the military of the Hezbollah, and he's he got killed at Damascus Airport in some sort of a bombing, mortar. Everybody's accusing everybody else of, of doing it because he had so many enemies. He was wanted by the International Criminal Court for, for the killing of, um, of Lebanon's President Hariri mm-hmm. uh, and for many, many other things. The U.S. wanted him. Everybody wanted him. And uh, 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 the interesting thing is, so this successor was going to be his, uh, uh, the son of Imad, who 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 is his nephew, uh, Mustafa um, Mugnia was going to be the successor, and they announced it, and then all of a sudden, Suleiman, who's the head of the Quds forces of the IRGC and probably the most important figure because he controls Iran's operations in Syria, Lebanon, etc., um, came to Lebanon and appointed a guy named Fuad Shukar, uh, who was one of the founders of Hezbollah with. Uh, um, Badruddin and, and Mugnia, he announced that he's the successor. Right. Dismissed this, the, the, the nephew, everything else. But right. it just tells you how much they control the decisions that are made. Right. Even of Hezbollah internally, because in the past there was always Hezbollah officials who made these decisions. And, and I assume that that directive comes from Iran eventually, right? Uh, completely. Right. He, uh, strictly from Iran. Right. It was Iran coming in there and saying, we're going to pick the guy. And and Hezbollah obviously has no choice, right. um, and that that is exactly the point is that you see the degree to which Iran Kerry supposedly told the foreign minister of of Saudi Arabia Adel Jabir that they intercepted four ships last month carrying weapons from Iran to Houthis in Yemen, meaning the U.S. intercepted U.S. intercepted four ships carrying weapons, and uh, again I, uh, we could cite cite you example after example of of what is happening in terms of Iran's 
expanded efforts and activities in each of the area in each of the countries that uh, that they target specifically giving orders now for Hezbollah to focus on Saudi Arabia to attack Saudi Arabia even more than Israel and to um, to allay the resources uh, against the Saudi targets they are moving all the time in in this aggressive and and hostile way and to whitewash that and to to try and portray it as if they're you know in compliance and therefore we should encourage them they have to live up to the to the letter, the spirit, and to stop the activities, which are, in fact, quite the opposite. Just. Uh uh, just expanding. All right, we'll get to the new Knesset in just a second. One last thing before that. Uh, could you give us this update and explain what's happening with the Methodist Church and BDS? So the Methodist Church, like other Protestant churches, in particular mainline Protestant churches, uh, have been flirting and, and uh, working on resolutions. It, often it, it's elements within the church, and they have a, a national equivalent of the National Convention that comes together a few years, and there was a slew of resolutions uh, that were introduced to support the church boycotting uh, Israeli products and joining in, uh, in essentially falling prey to the BDS movement. And in fact, uh, these resolutions did not pass, and there was a vote that was taken by, and it's a, a complicated structure, so I'm not going to go into the details about the finance committees and other committees, uh, uh, but they voted to withdraw from an association with one of the BDS movements uh, because they said it was too one-sided, too anti-Israel, and uh, vote overwhelmingly to sever their ties with that particular group. Unfortunately, they still get a lot of votes in this, and it's an extensive effort. We see it throughout the churches, and even now amongst some of the evangelical churches, we are seeing an erosion amongst the younger people. Uh, there's an active effort to bring young evangelicals to to the West Bank and to inf- and to influence them and to you know at least to try to get them to not to be anti-Israel but to be balanced and to say there's two sides so they don't do the nights down in Israel and right. something that's of great concern and the uh, degree of infiltration into the to the church groups uh, is very serious they're doing it in unions and others people we always focus on the campus because that's the front line right. but as I said it affects every sector of society. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmdm.org, and of course on the NSN app, where I see some people continue to comment regarding the broadcast, which we appreciate, or at least generally appreciate. So we have a new Knesset. Um, the uh, the negotiations, it seems, between Prime Minister Netanyahu and uh, Yitzhak Herzog did not go too well. He moved on to uh, to his new defense minister, Defense Minister Lieberman, who's going to be uh, in this new configured government. I believe now he ends up with a with a coalition of sixty five seats. Is that the final total as of now? It's sixty seven. It's sixty seven. It's six additional to the sixty-one he had, so that's sixty-seven. Uh, six well, first seats. of all, it's not a change in the Knesset; it's a change in the in the government, in the right. coalition within the Knesset. Nothing changed in the Knesset except that uh, Boogie Alon, the current defense minister or outgoing defense minister, resigned today from the Knesset and from the government. Why am I under the impression that one of uh, Lieberman's party members left uh, after this uh, arrangement? 
Well, but it doesn't, even if anybody leaves, it doesn't change the numbers. They replace them with the next person in line. It's it's the party seat. It's not gotcha. All right. So we, so we have a total of 67. Okay, gotcha. So, Go ahead. Yeah, so, so he resigns. 67. And, um, and he did start the negotiations, and they, they have been going on, it seems, for some time. Uh, uh, the, the, the former Labor Party, the Zionist Union uh, leader led by um, uh, Yitzhak Herzog, Bushy Herzog, um, faced an internal rebellion left by, led by Yachimovich, as he said, and also external problems. Uh, and uh, he, I think he wanted very seriously to bring him into the government. As you see in the polls, their numbers are collapsing. Um, it, uh, the talks obviously didn't go the way they wanted, and he turned to... Um, and, and there was a danger that if he brought in the Zionist Union... Some of the members of the current government would have resigned and would have left. And Netanyahu therefore turned to Lieberman, who just a month ago was criticizing attacking him, uh, <laughs> and pretty consistently over the years, to come in. And his demand was that he get the defense ministry. I think he wanted to keep Yalom and have him be the foreign minister, but that is not what uh, what he demanded in return. All right, so Lieberman, Lieberman, so Lieberman's the new defense minister. Likely, it's not. It's not signed and sealed yet, but it's most likely. And um, and uh, Netanyahu, the prime minister, felt this was necessary because he was holding a coalition essentially of sixty-one seats, and every time a vote came up or any time any type of uh, every individual could hold him hostage. Right, exactly. Every vote would mean that he could lose. And that's essentially what was going on. So uh, there are people who are not happy with this. There are people who are both in Israel and outside of Israel who would have preferred if he would not have made a deal with Lieberman. Uh, yes, and there are, you know, a lot of people were stunned, a lot of people are confused by it, that they don't know if this is a Band-Aid, is this a, a temporary move, does it really buy him the margin that he needs and wants to, um, you know, to be able to govern more effectively by having these six votes inside the coalition. Uh, they are more or less politically attuned, although uh, Lieberman had certain demands like the death penalty for terrorists and Etc. And and uh, Yalom's parting comments are, are no doubt pretty harsh. It 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 doesn't add to the image of stability, etc. And uh, Yalom had developed very close ties with Ash Carter, our Secretary of Defense, and with the military establishment here. Uh, they said today that they're looking forward. U.S. officials are looking forward to working with the new Defense Minister, whoever that may be, and. Uh, will not get caught in this, and, the, I, and it is true the relationship is entrenched, and it, it uh, doesn't change whether the secretaries of defense change. Yeah, but they can't. Everybody be, thinks it's a disaster. But they can't be too be too happy. No, they're not happy in Washington. They're more confused than than unhappy. And I know how many calls I got yesterday morning saying, "Well, what does this mean?" What is this from the officials and others? Um, it, 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 look, it's part of the instability of the Israeli political system that really needs reforming, uh, that puts every prime minister uh, virtually at risk at times, and governments fall. You know, the average life of a government in Israel is two and a half years. The average uh, term for a, for a leader of Likud is actually very long. I think they've only had four or five leaders since its inception. The Labor Party changes leaders, I think, on average every two years or every three years. Uh, so th- there are a lot of problems within the system. And when you have, you know, the list system, it, it puts a prime minister who has to form a coalition government because nobody ever gets 
61 seats in his own party yeah. to have a majority in the Knesset. How did Yalon get, I just don't remember, how did he get the job to begin with as defense minister? Well, he was chief of staff, and he was uh, a prominent member in Likud. He is highly regarded within Likud, um, and was a natural choice for it. And uh, these episodes where he encouraged uh, high-ranking IDF officials to quote-unquote express themselves, and of course the Chevron situation, and then the, uh, the um, uh, I forgot what position he was holding, the one who compared Israel to... Um, the deputy uh, chief of staff. Deputy chief of staff, and he ran to his defense, or, or I should say more, you know, he ran to explain uh, you know, what he really meant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So all these things, I guess... You know, built up after a while, and uh, I would assume the prime minister just couldn't tolerate it. Well, there were some in Likud who, for a long time, uh, I'm friendly, very friendly with the uh, the outgoing minister, uh, and uh, I think he's he's a very intelligent guy, and he's he's been very supportive with relationships, etc. Um, but there were a lot, there were people in Likud who all along sniped at him, felt that he was, you know, not uh, of the right. Um, I think that generally his, he, he was regarded as a good minister of defense and a good chief of staff. He's, um, uh, it's, and you're bringing in somebody who really has no experience in the military, has never, you know, wasn't a commander, etc. Of most of the people who who have been, I think the only one before him was Amir Peretz, mm. who was uh, well. Shimon Peretz was also a minister of defense. Both of them did uh, a very good job. So. I guess he can as well. Uh, the question is, A, how long the government lasts. B, B needs to try to put together a coalition. That's what he wants that can last till 2018 when the next elections take place. I don't know there are many people who would bet on how long that will, in fact, be. Yeah, I understand that. Um, so there was this French-sponsored summit that was supposed to take place. Why did this appear in the news cycle out of nowhere. I didn't. <laughs> I assume you knew about it, but I don't think the average person knew that there was supposed to be some type of, I guess, a peace summit, right? Well, I did talk about it on the show, about the, that it was <laughs> uh, boiling, and, and um, it was certainly on the stove, and they finally announced the date, uh, which turned out to be Memorial Day, so, the, so Kerry said he wouldn't come, and they've rearranged it, and now Kerry said he will attend uh, a, a rescheduled uh, conference. It's an attempt by France to be relevant. It's an attempt to them to be in the center of the action. Is it against the move against the U.S. in part? Yes, against the U.S. leadership. Uh, they say, look, we're filling the void. This is really a good move. We're not going to develop the borders there. I mean, uh, this is what French officials have told me. Um, but in fact, this is, again, a bailout of, of uh, Abbas that he doesn't have to negotiate, that he doesn't have to sit down and make concessions, he doesn't have to talk to the Israelis. Uh, I, I spoke yesterday with Dory Golden, and in the discussion he used the line that, that he wants land without peace. Right. And that's that the core is that he doesn't want to negotiate, and this everything like this says to him, you don't have to, don't worry about it. We're going to bail you out one way or another. The international community will put the pressure only on Israel. That an outgoing president will put the pressure on Israel. That somebody will 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 you know keep the uh, the uh, Israel under the gun to make concessions even before they come to the to the talks. People are already um, putting out um, uh, positions. And they're saying, look, we won't lay out the parameters. Although many people think maybe President Obama might, after November, if if there isn't a resolution, then maybe a speech. But certainly, something is going to uh, is going to be forthcoming even from the U.S. on this. 
U.S. did not support and didn't like the idea of the French thing. They tried to discourage it. But some have told me, look, if if this is going to be a good diversion uh, to avoid support for a Palestinian resolution now, which, you know, they wanted to reduce and has been put on the side, and that could be more dangerous than force a U.S. veto if it is, in fact, violative of, of U.S. standards. The danger is what if they come up with a resolution that essentially quotes the president and picks up some of the statements that he's made and tries to show the United States they can't uh, veto, maybe they'll abstain. So it's a very, it's a time of great flux because this, the, um, there are many options about what could be done. So the French uh, conference, which will not include Israel or the Palestinians, it's going to include the Arab countries and others, is supposed to create the conditions, and they say, for direct negotiation. Right. Now you saw that, that President Sisi came out this week and said that he would help mediate, that he would help, but, but talked about direct negotiations between the parties, that they would foster it and that it would create warmer ties with Egypt and with the Arab world for Israel. Everybody and wants to help Israel. It's amazing. Would, would the French have been this aggressive about this summit if, not, if it would not be the final year of the Obama administration? Well, they want, as I said, if, if it's to project themselves into the region and if it's to take advantage of the fact that America has, is seen as having withdrawn and, um, and it's also driven by the foreign ministers. And, and look, the positions taken by the French government, they supported that UNESCO resolution. Uh, which changed the names of all the holy places and removed the Jewish names and just left the Muslim names. They, Germany, others all voted, Britain voted against it, and France voted for it. Now they're apologizing, and they've written us, they've issued statements saying that that it was a mistake, we shouldn't have done it, the president said it, the foreign minister said it, the prime minister said it, but the fact is, so we said to them, then rescind it, move to rescind it, as long as it's on the books. Future generations will all pay the price when we're excluded from the Temple Mount, from the Kotel, from uh, Rachel's tomb, because you guys all declared it only a Muslim holy place, and you voted for it in the international body in, in the UN and UNESCO. And, uh, and we're still pressing. We're not going to give up until they rescind it. But the fact is that, that you see that France, and they said it was a mistake, it was miscommunication. It was, uh, no, they, they weren't there that day. They were, yeah, but Whatever. if but if but if we weren't facing a new presidency in this country, it, it, or or uh, yes, it makes us more vulnerable. But it's not the reason I think for for it happening. By the way, back to Lieberman for a second. There are those who continue to ask, uh, including among our listeners, whether this is going to make uh, Israel more aggressive when it comes to, you know, the possibility of uh, attacking Iran, so to speak, or no. just just in general the threats that may come out of Israel toward its neighbors. I mean, I don't know if BB can control everything that Lieberman says in a public forum. He can't control him, but, but Lieberman, in many respects, is not such a hardliner. He, he does demand the death penalty, and, and uh, but he has favored negotiations. So, no, I don't believe that there'll be any radical change, and it is the prime minister, ultimately, who makes these decisions. He, he's the one who will set the tone, who will, and while there could be conflicts, as we saw, and always see in Israel, every minister thinks he's a prime minister, right. but the uh, but the fact is that it's the prime minister who makes the decision. Right, I got to ask you this because it's been there's been so much discussion about it and articles written this week. I mean, there are those who are claiming that BB really duped John Kerry in this case, and that uh, his intention the entire time was to 
get to a point where he could form this coalition, but essentially say to the U.S. and the world, look, I tried. I tried to, you know, I tried to form a government or to expand this government with the, with the parties that you want, but look, it's impossible to do so. I, I, is he that clever? Is he such a great backroom politician that, in fact, one can view this as duping the United States? I don't know. I wasn't in the back room, but I think <laughs> he is very clever, very smart. Uh, but I, I, this, uh, the talks with um, Herzog actually started, from what I've heard now, months ago. So I don't think it's a response to that. I thought you were going to ask, is there other reports that the U.S. and others conspired, even with um, uh, President Sisi, that to push... Uh, Herzog to get to get the government to to be expanded with the Zionist Union with the la- uh, former Labor Party. Well, weren't they it. weren't they actively and campaigning? Bieber's, and that BB's actions actually, you know, sh- short circuited that effort. Right. I mean, they were actively campaigning for that. No. You know, in a quiet way, because if they do it actively, you know, the people of Israel will reject it completely. Yeah. Well, I mean, actively, they, but they quietly. Reject their <laughs> Labor Party as it is now. You see that they're down in the polls to thirteen seats, though. We know that doesn't necessarily mean what the outcome would be, and there are deep divisions in the Labor Party. And if they were more open in it, it would certainly backfire. And we don't know. I don't know that it's, in fact, true, but it's certainly plausible. All right, so the French summit, which will not include Israel, will not include the PA, is going to be now when? What's the new date, or is there They no, haven't set the date. No new date yet. No. Um, the, uh, the, uh, and by the way, the president of Israel... Uh, Ruby Rivlin expressed great regret that Yalon is leaving the government. Yes, well, you know that his relationship with Netanyahu was bad, that Netanyahu didn't support him for the presidency originally. So, um, you know, there's always been a tension in their relationship, and he has made comments that, um, let's say, differed somewhat from, I think, the line the prime minister takes. Mm. Did they get along when they're in public? Uh, they try to, yes. Oh, interesting. I have to pay much more careful attention. Senator Charles Schumer announced Senate passage of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act and urged the House to quickly follow suit. Prior to its passage, he called for unanimous consent to pass the bill on the Senate floor. The bill has, long, has been long sought after by families of 9-11 to bring a small amount of justice for the loss of their loved ones by allowing them to sue foreign states and financial partners of terrorism. Now, am I right or wrong that the White House was against this? Against the legislation, yes. And the president has threatened to veto it. And that's what's going to happen eventually? Because you, I assume it's going to pass the House, right? Yeah, the House would be easier to pass it. So he's going to veto it. And and the reason he's going to veto it essentially is just not to, not a slap, so it won't be a slap in the face of Saudi Arabia? Yes. And, well, look, we we have to look at the total picture on um, about uh, Saudi Arabia and the, the, there are a couple issues. One is the release of the 29 pages report about 9-11. Saudi Arabia is adamant against it. They, uh, many uh, Brennan, the former head of CIA, said there's a lot of inaccuracies and it's uh, hearsay, it's accusations. Um, Bob Graham, who was then a senator and I think the head of the Intelligence Committee or, or on it, who has said he has read it and he thinks that it should be released, that there's information there. Um, the question of Saudi Arabia's involvement in 9-11 certainly has been the subject of a lot of speculation right. for, for years. So that has become a big debate. It's about the, the release of those, um, of those documents, which could be accusatory of, uh, of Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia's continued funding of some of the extremist groups. Uh, you know, they fund uh, today uh, the, the war against the Houthis, 
and the fighting in, in Syria by rebels, but their financial situation has changed with the drop in oil prices, uh, though not to the point where they're, uh, I would say, uh, hurting uh, personally, but, but certainly in their collective budget has had to be re- readjusted, and they're talking now about moving away an energy-based economy, uh, something that would have a certainly radical impact. So the resolution, the fear is, and, and the Saudis have said that this will impact the relationship. Hmm. Very interesting. What's the uh, Middle East reaction, you think, to the changes in the Israeli government? Do countries like Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states care that the, uh, the defense post is now held by a more right-wing uh, politician? Again, I'm not sure what you know how we define what's more right wing or left. You know, right. in this context, but they want to see Israel strong, and they believe that because the West has proven so weak, that's part of the attraction. Is that that's when Munia was uh, when uh, Berdedin was killed. They they reacted very positively because they thought you know that Israel pulled off this precision strike and that this was uh, right. again a you know a great accomplishment. Uh, and they they talk openly of of their admiration and respect for that part of for Israel. So whether it's more right wing, left right wing doesn't impact them. They want to know what the policy is, and is Israel committed still to making sure Iran doesn't get a nuclear weapon, which is their great fear. That is the obsessive uh, danger to Saudi Arabia, to the Gulf, to Bahrain, and other countries, uh, and ISIS, which is increasing its activities in um, in in many areas, including in Iraq, where they. Um, uh, you know, carried out four bombings in open-air markets just in the last week. They killed 150 people and claimed more than 500 in the capital in less than a month. They, we, we see their activities expanding also in, um, in, in other areas, but their horrendous activities. They killed these Ethiopian Christians and made films. They burnt their churches. They burned 45 of their own guys alive for trying to flee a, a battle with the, the Kurds and, uh, and a family of five. You know, people forget because I guess we get so used to their barbaric methods and the, and the fact that they behead and they engage in other kinds of of uh, killings on a on a regular basis. And Al Qaeda now, not to be outdone, their leadership is sending their top guys uh, now to create new headquarters in Syria that they want to have a base there, like ISIS has the an area, uh, and they're moving, working with Al Nusra, which is their affiliate in Syria which is the, also the ones who control areas along the Golan. Um, and they're recruiting from, from there. Then they can recruit Iraqis and Jordanians and Turks and Lebanese, et cetera, for their, for their activities. So, so much uh, uh, is going on, and, and, and the, the, uh, the, the Arab states look at this, and they see that there's no counteraction. You have ISIS. Uh, I talked about 5,000 guys in certain Now it's estimated it's over 6,000 already. And growing all the time, the the uh, activities in Gaza and Sinai expanded. Certainly, of uh, IS that uh, the Islamic State uh, has expanded its activities uh, in the Sinai and the the um, uh, the cooperation between Israel and, and Egypt is is really critical because they can move against uh, both ways. So, we, you know, the Middle East is boiling, and people get used to it, and the newspapers don't cover. Uh, some of their activities uh, on a regular basis, but they're not sitting back and waiting. F- and and the Saudis are looking at this and seeing that their future uh, gets jeopardized. And then Iran is very blatant and open 
in in the, their activities to undermine regimes there. Well, and all they hope for is that Israel stays as stable as possible. <laughs> you know what? That Iran passed a bill this week by a, a margin, I think it was like 170-something to 6 or 5, 7, um, that America owes them $50 billion because of our hostile activities, and they cite the, the uh, overthrow of Mossadegh in 53 <laughs> and the Iran-Iraq war from 1980 to 88 and uh, some other things, and, they, they, um, and they're demanding now, this is the answer to the lawsuit that made it, uh, victims of terror sponsored by Iran, directly or indirectly, uh, that the Supreme Court ruled could collect on the funds that are being uh, held uh, and frozen funds here in the United States of Iran. So this is their their answers to tell the United States owes them fifty billion dollars. They want to end up uh, at the end being ahead of the game. Um, well, of course, they make a profit. <laughs> exactly. Finally, uh, does your political science expertise tell you that most Jewish Republicans will, in fact, back Donald Trump as we get closer and closer to the election? Well, as you know, I don't I don't get into the election because I think people should focus on Congress. They should focus on the issues. Um, uh, as important as the presidential election is, I think that the Republicans are starting to unite behind uh, their candidate, and uh, I think they, anybody but as somebody very fringe it's good, accepts the fact that, that he will be the candidate. Uh, so while I'm sure there will be defections, as there will be on both sides and always are, uh, yes, I do think that uh, more and more will start to unite. I mean, they are already uh, behind uh, uh, the Trump candidacy. And the question is, can the Republican Party really unite? Can they can they go forward and into the convention without the defections, without a lot of attention? So we'll see who he appoints as uh, vice president. It's really as important, I think, as as it is in this case. Uh, and also for for Secretary Clinton about who she's going to choose. Yeah, Th- those will be two very interesting choices. That's very sure. interesting uh, questions about what what impact that will have. All right, Malcolm, I thank you very much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again next week. My pleasure. Good Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. The weekly update is what we call it, 740 every Friday morning here at JM in the AM.